In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote this. Before the gospel can ever be heard as an effective cure for anything, an analysis of the present situation must first be made and accepted. And make no mistake about it, C.S. Lewis continued, make no mistake about it, any analysis of the present situation will eventually be exceedingly bad news. Which is to say, Jesus becomes good news, according to C.S. Lewis. Jesus becomes good news only to people who are willing to come to grips with the bad news of the present situation. And if there is any truth whatsoever in that idea, and I believe there to be, then allow me to begin the sermon with this colloquial setup. I have some good news for you, and I have some bad news for you. Allow me to begin with the bad news, but stay with me because good news is coming, I promise. Here is the bad news. For all the good that the church has done in its 2,000 year existence, and please hear this, the church has done millions upon millions of remarkably good things in the name of Jesus. May we never become, may we never become too cynical to acknowledge that. But for all of the good that the church has done in its 2,000 year existence, the church also has a long history of engaging in a phenomenological practice that is toxic to the human community and crushing to the human soul. And worse, the church has often rationalized or even defended this practice through the complexities of its dogma and the nuances of its biblical hermeneutics. The practice to which I'm making reference is what many people describe as the practice of othering. Othering. A calculated effort to highlight what it is that makes an individual or a group different from us, and then to assign to those differences a negative characterization in a manner that places the individual or the group outside of our immediate conceptualization of community, so that the individual or the group becomes other first in our thinking, then in our prioritization, and ultimately in our practice. To put it another way, the practice of othering is essentially an insistence, an insistence upon categorizing people as a resistible them, instead of seeing people as an embraceable us. And one might ask, why in the world would the church of all communities why would the church see fit to engage in an alienating and hurtful practice like othering when the essence of our proclamation is a deity who became flesh specifically to bring about reconciliation? Why would a community built upon the theological concept of reconciliation devote so much time and energy to the practice of othering? And to be honest with you, I am not a profound enough theologian or a good enough sociologist to provide for you an adequate response to that question. But I do find myself wondering if this practice of othering is somehow linked to our earliest primal distortions, what theologians might call original sin. Think with me for a moment 
about how it is that Adam responds to God in the garden in the aftermath of eating the forbidden fruit. Do you remember Adam's first response? It was the woman you gave me. And with those carefully chosen words, all of a sudden the relational intimacy of being naked in front of one another and not ashamed gives way to the othering of Eve and, in fact, the othering of God. Yes, it was the woman, but God really, when you think about it, you provided the woman so indirectly. This is all your fault. Perhaps the point of that moment in Genesis is that this practice of othering whatever vocabulary is attached to it, this practice of othering exists somewhere very close to the heart of our original sin. And it would be difficult to prove otherwise based upon history, right? Whether on the streets of Iran or Wall Street, for example, the othering of women continues to be a well-documented practice in a world bent toward misogyny. And what breaks my heart when I study any portion of the church's history is how frequently churches have been complicit complicit in that othering of women, often by hanging their hats on those scriptures that they are all too eager to weaponize against women in a way that diminishes them or in a way that prevents them from realizing the fullness of their vocational potential, even in the church. Please, teach our children but don't occupy our pulpits. Please coordinate Vacation Bible School, head up a mission project, but don't expect your voice to be a part of the ministry-shaping dialogue that every church needs to experience. And the othering of persons of color, well, that has its own long, ugly, an agonizing history in the church. Did you know, for example, that our portion of the body of Christ, the Methodist Church, before it became the United Methodist Church, but the Methodist Church in 1939 established a non-geographical central jurisdiction, a non-geographical central jurisdiction to which all African-American clergy, all African-American Methodist clergy and congregations were assigned. It was the church's way of enforcing ecclesiastical segregation. The horrific institution of slavery had had ended decades earlier, but in 1939, just 84 years ago, by the way, the Methodist denomination institutionalized the othering of African-American Methodists by making that othering a part of its very structure. Last Sunday, After the 11 o'clock service, Tara and I were really pleased to attend the pancake breakfast for um, the LGBTQIA plus ministry and its allies here at Christ Church. The room was packed. There were over 50 people there. We ran out of pancakes. I've never been so happy to run out of pancakes. And at some point during that breakfast, I looked around that room and into the faces of these incredible people, many of whom have been completely and at times violently othered by the church 
by their families because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And at some point in the midst of all of that, I remember thinking to myself, when will the church's repentance, when will the church's repentance become authentic enough and comprehensive enough to inspire the church's people to recognize the countenance of Jesus in the face of the other? So that otherness becomes a doorway for reconciliation and not a rationalization for mistreatment. I find myself wondering as I stand here today looking into your faces, where is it in your life that you feel most othered by people? And where is it that you might be most tempted to other others? The church has a long, painful, heartbreaking history with the practice of othering. That is the bad news. Are you ready for some good news? <laughs> Me too. Wow. Me too. Here it is. Comes to us courtesy of John's Gospel. Jesus, in the middle of a long journey, pauses to rest by a well. And not just any well, Jacob's well. Uh, a local watering hole with a long history where people who might have held contempt for one another otherwise would gather over their common need for water. And we're told that as Jesus rests by this well, a woman comes to draw water at noontime. At noontime. A very specific detail. And I draw attention to that detail because of what history tells us. And history tells us that that is not the time of day when people would have come to the well to draw water. They would have come in the morning. They would have come in the evening, not the hottest time of the day. And the fact that Scripture makes it a point to give us that time frame, that detail, is probably a pretty good indication that this woman comes to the well hoping that she won't encounter anybody else. She comes to the well at a time when she believes no one else is going to be there. The hottest time of the day, only on this occasion somebody is there, Jesus, but a stranger to her. And Jesus initiates a conversation. It sounds innocent enough. Woman, give me a drink. But there are a couple of things, at least a couple of things, that make this conversation between Jesus and this woman something strange and a bit controversial. In the first place, we're told that this woman is Samaritan, Jesus is Jewish. And Jewish people and Samaritan people at this point in time are at opposite ends of a 400-year-old theological, cultural feud. And there's a long and interesting history that could be told about that feud. But for our purposes, suffice it to say that in the environment of the first century, Jewish people and Samaritan people were not to be fraternizing with one another, and they certainly were not to become vulnerable enough in front of one another to make a request or to ask for a drink of water. But this moment is also controversial, not only because the woman is a Samaritan, but also because she is a woman. And in the first century theological climate, at least in portions of it, it was absolutely forbidden for rabbis to experience public communication with women, even their own wives and children. And 
To make matters even more complicated, we're told that this Samaritan woman finds herself in the midst of a domestic situation that is complicated and painful. At one point in their conversation, Jesus says to her, why don't you go and get your husband and come back and we'll all talk together. And the woman responds to that, I have no husband. And Jesus, and we're not certain of how, but Jesus peers into the nooks and crannies of this woman's life and begins to name her story. You were right in saying that you have no husband, for in fact, you've had five husbands, and the man with whom you are now living is not your husband. And historically, it's at that point that the church has immediately jumped to a place of judgment over this woman's character. I've seen it up close and personally. I've heard it in Bible studies. I've heard people come to the immediate conclusion, well, this must be an immoral woman. This must be a promiscuous woman who is moving from one man to another irresponsibly with a devil-may-care nonchalance. But I ask you to remember something, just to broaden the way that you engage with this story. This was a woman in first century Palestine. And for a woman in first century Palestine, there was not much hope of being successfully single. There was not much hope of being financially independent. In fact, in most cases, a woman in first century Palestine depended upon a relationship with a man for survival. And so it may very well be that this woman is not inherently immoral. It may simply be that she has been abused and cast aside by one man after another, an all-too-common scenario in the first century. It may be that, this, that she has children to feed and this man with whom she is living is her last desperate hope at survival. Irrespective of the details, it becomes clear to us in this biblical moment that Jesus in the pre- is in the presence of a woman who has been comprehensively othered. Othered by the men in her life, othered by her faith community, othered by the theology of the day and circumstances that might have been out of her control, othered by a narrative that perhaps became crushing for her along the way, crushing enough to make her want to come to the well at the hottest time of the day in the hope of not running into anybody else. And how does Jesus respond? This is really the essence of the scripture. How does Jesus respond to this thoroughly othered woman? Does he pile on? Does he add his voice to the chorus of judgment that this woman has no doubt received over the course of her journey? Does he condemn her or dismiss her? Does he quote from the law to her or maybe the United Methodist Book of Discipline? No. Jesus speaks to this woman of the living water that he came into this world to make available. Living water, an image of life and healing and vitality, perhaps inspired by Jesus' recognition of the desperate thirstiness of this woman's soul. And I love the way the woman responds to Jesus. She misses his metaphor slightly, and that's okay. She's engaging in the conversation, right? Sir, where's your bucket? 
It's great that you're speaking to me about this living water. That's wonderful. I'd like to have some of that, but where's your bucket? How are you going to fetch this water? You don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. And in my imagination, this isn't in the text, but in my imagination when I thought about this story, even as a child, I always imagined Jesus responding to this woman in this fashion. Ma'am, if you think this well is deep, wait till you see the well of God's ridiculous grace. You ain't seen nothing yet. Much ink, much ink has been spilled concerning what it was that Jesus meant specifically by living water. And it's probably best for us not to burden the story with too detailed an interpretation of that. But I have to believe that for this woman, the living water was, the living water was nothing less than an outpoured love. An outpoured love that flowed sweetly into her sense of alienation an outpoured love that drenched her with the truth that she was seen and heard and known and valued. An outpoured love, the waves and currents of which carried this othered woman back into a transformational intimacy with the very heart of God. Because you see, in the living water that Jesus provides, the practice of othering somehow gives way to synchronized swimming. In the living water of God's grace, even alienated souls, and my goodness, there are plenty of those in the world, maybe even in this room. But in the living water of God's grace, even alienated souls float toward one another in a mutual recognition of sacred personhood. And in a world where othering is as popular as it is, I call that good news. I used to facilitate a monthly communion service at a county prison north of Pittsburgh. And uh, one day I facilitated this service on the women's block of that prison. And I remember that service very well because that day I read the story of uh, the Samaritan woman encountering Jesus from John's Gospel. And something led me to do it. I did not go into the service planning for this, but something inspired me after reading the story simply because of how the women there that day were responding to it. I invited them to share any responses to the story that they might be inclined to share. That's always risky, but worth it. You know, worth it. And one young woman raised her hand. She was in her mid-twenties, a heroin addict, doing time for drug possession while at the same time experiencing rehab. You know, she said, uh, I might be wrong about this, but I think that woman, you know, that woman at the well, I think she was an addict, just like I am. Only, instead of being addicted to heroin, I think she was addicted to really bad men. <laughs> and really bad ideas about herself. And just like it did for me, I think her addiction ripped her away from her family and places that she loved so that she felt all alone and worthless. 
Yeah, she said, I, I think her story is kind of like my story, and I sure do hope that there's enough of that special water. That's what she called it. I hope there's enough of that special water for her and for me and for everybody else in this room. I sure hope there's enough of that special water for us. And then there was this quiet, and I remember the quiet because it was a place where quiet was often incredibly difficult to come by. And in the quiet, someone sitting on the other side of the room slowly raised her hand, another woman. Hey, she said, hey. Of course there's enough of that special water for all of us. Of course there is. Didn't you hear the woman in the story? She said, the well is deep. Indeed, the well of God's living water is beautifully and extraordinarily deep so that there is enough of that living water for everybody. That is our gospel. That is our good news. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.